You are listening to a White Phosphorus Pictures podcast. Broadcasting under the night sky from the edge of an undisclosed jungle on the Gulf of Mexico, I'm Christopher Garitano, your voice in the night. For the next hour, allow me to be your guide into the bizarre unknown, the fantastic macabre, and together we'll journey to that borderland between fiction and reality, a place beyond all rational explanation. We are now off to the witch. don't know how much I've missed all of you. And I promise you I'll never desert you again. Because after Salome, we'll make another picture and another picture. You see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. That was a profound moment from the 1950 Billy Wilder film Sunset Boulevard about a deranged silent movie actress, Norma Desmond, who aspires to be back in front of the cameras. It's a dark, cautionary tale about fame and one of the greatest metaphysical productions ever to come out of Hollywood. Mostly misunderstood by the public, there are few who truly can fathom what a life in pictures good, bad, and ugly actually is. Tonight's guest is an actor, radio personality, model, writer, and movie director who has lived through an amazing roller coaster that epitomizes a life in pictures. We'll hear her story after this commercial break. After these messages, we'll be right back. You are listening to the Off to the Witch podcast, where we explore that bizarre borderline between fiction and reality and all subjects arcane. Journey over to my YouTube channel and subscribe now at youtube.com slash at off to the witch for a variety of extras and special features, including the off to the witch mini docs with further insights on many of the latest episodes, as well as previews and behind the scenes of my forthcoming investigative series off to the witch presents, as well as the anniversary edition of my motion picture documentary Montauk Chronicles and follow us on social media. All links are available at linktree.com slash garitano7, G-A-R-E-T-A-N-O-7. And stay tuned for more Off to the Witch. Will it give me nightmares? Yeah, nightmares. She knows who they are. She knows their fears. What she doesn't know is who to kill first. To kiss and tell? Something isn't right tonight. We're playing a nice little game of mine. Are you afraid yet? <laughs> this Halloween. Who the fuck are you? This is my game! They will live. You're gonna play by my goddamn 
I know Clint will dine here tonight. All right? Why are you doing this? The nightmare. Ah! I'm your host, Christopher Garitano, and tonight's guest, Debbie Roshan, has a movie career that spans over 40 years. In that time, she's lived through moments of both the brutalities and casualties of the business, as well as incredible achievements and triumphs. Two hours is barely enough time to tell her story, but this is my best shot for tonight. So here's my interview with Debbie Roshan. My name is Debbie Roshan. Uh, I was born in British Columbia, the outskirts of Vancouver, um, very small town, um, craziness, uh, a lot of people going nowhere and, and as in any small town in the world, I would imagine, um, I ran away from home, so to speak. I was being put in foster care and, uh, different, um, institutions because at school, uh, the teachers would see that I would be wearing clothes that had holes and they weren't sewn up and they didn't fit me. And they would bring me in and they would like sew up the holes and stuff. But at a certain point, and you know, we're going back a long ways now into uh, what, late 60s, early 70s. Um, so it isn't what it is today. So eventually, you know, they had, um, my parents, uh, looked at, and I was taken out of that, um, particular situation with them. My mother was in the hospital with, um, Gillian Barr disease. And my dad was a very, very intense alcoholic. Um, so there really wasn't anything there, which was reflective of why I was showing up the way I was. So I was put into the system and there was another kid who he was gay. And so he was getting beaten up at school. Like he would often have black eyes and, um, just because he was gay for no other reason. And so he said, you know, I'm not doing these foster care homes. Like really who wants to adopt a teen, a kind of could be a preteen, you know, 11 or, or whatever, but really who wants to adopt them? They want a baby, you know, a good family. Everybody else just wants the money. So he said, you know, let's just, we're better off just, you know, going to Vancouver and just trying to make a life for ourselves. So I said, yeah, I couldn't agree more. So we went out there and, um, well, everything was quite different than we thought it would be. It was very good for him because at that time there was this massive sort of, um, being out as a gay person in that particular city. I think, uh, in a lot of big cities, it was going on at that time in the seventies. Uh, so he did a lot of kind of caretaking of me 
in the beginning. Um, he sort of like ended up doing some hustling and, and various things, but he was quite protective of me. Um, and I got started to get involved with um, drugs. I was doing them, but even more importantly, I was sort of like helping get them from A to B and, and you know, small things like that, you know, just sort of like running around the, the streets doing that sort of thing. Um, then eventually a friend of mine said, you know, um, Paramount is in town and there's this casting director, Lynn Caro, I'll never forget her name, uh, is doing this big casting, you know, for background people, for ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains. And, uh, her casting office is actually in the Denman Inn, which is a hotel. So they said, oh, I just go up there. So I went up there and uh, she just asked me a few questions, took a Polaroid, and then hired me. And before you knew it, I was meeting Caroline Kuhn, uh, who was, uh, she was sort of the overseer of, you know, what is punk, so to speak, because it was a punk rock movie, and uh, became very fast friends with her. Shumi was doing a bit, he was like the number one hairstylist in London at the time. And so he came over and did the, the girl's hair, the girls meeting Diane Lane, Laura Dern and, uh, Marin Canting, I believe her name is. And, but he was doing the, the proper, you know, hair and, and dyeing and everything like that. And she had me, uh, have my hair done the same way, like professionally by him. And so it just, we became very fast friends. How did you feel though? I want to catch this while I can. How did you feel at that time with a kid growing up around crime, around some poverty, around things that you couldn't have? And now motion pictures are before you. You're sitting there right now where people are bringing you into a movie. Do you remember how you saw it or were you just living in the moment? I, you know, I was really living in the moment, I think. I really didn't even know what it meant. Um, they said it was going to take three months to do the movie and they were paying cash at the end of every week. So it was $300 at the end of every week, which was a lot of money to me. Um, and it was very, very exciting. I mean, and I was jumping to the film when I was working on the film, which wasn't long after when she had hired me. Um, the amazing thing to me was I was there and I was just giving every ounce I had, every bit I had to this just being background. And, uh, the assistant director, Tommy, his name was, uh, came up to me a couple of times and told me how good I was doing now. That was the first time in my life I had ever heard somebody say to me that I was doing something good, like really like singled me out, took me aside and said, that was great. And, you know, I didn't see him do it with anybody else. So I thought he must have meant it. And it had such a strong impact on me. And I was just, you know, when they said you're looking for somebody, man, every cell in my body was looking for, I was doing, you know, method before I even knew what the word meant. You know, I was just like really, really invested, invested like completely to this. Did you escape into the cinema at all when you were a kid? Did you go to the movies? Were you, did you 
what, did you have a connection with cinema before you got this job? The only connection to cinema before I got the job was um, I had gone to the movies a couple of times as a kid. I do remember going to the drive-in when I was really, really young um, and being, it was so nice to escape all the stuff around you by watching a movie and, you know, seeing like some of the great movies on the big screen, it did have a really big effect on me. Um, and then at home I would see like the hammer movies late at night, I would wake up and I would go turn the TV on and there'd be, you know, a hammer movie, like a sexy vampire movie, but it had a little bit of scare to it. And I thought, Oh, that is so cool. Like that's really, really cool. And I think that's that like, it was like a whole different, like the, everybody who was on the screen, they must have had like the most beautiful, golden, perfect lives. Of course, a lot of people felt that way. Not so much today where everything's overanalyzed and everybody's lives are, are you know, raked over the coals. But then it was just so amazing to just think of what it must be like to be, say, Ingrid Pitt. Like just every step you took would be glorious, you know, to have that, that sort of an idea in your head as a kid. Um, and then, so yeah, I was just, I wasn't thinking about that when I was, uh, working on the movie, ladies and gentlemen, but, um, I, I did feel like it was just so special. And then when I started to hear things like, you know, the woman who wrote the movie, the movie, um, Nancy Dowd, uh, she wanted to take her name off of it or change the name to some man's name because Lou Adler, who had done Rocky Horror Picture Show and some other stuff, he was just running with it. Like he was having fun with the boys. You know, it was all over the place, apparently, which I did not see because I didn't know enough at that time. Everything was going, you know, not the way that she would want it to go. Like she, he wasn't capturing the vibe she felt that she um, had when she wrote the movie. So she was distancing herself from it. And um, I was like confused because I was just seeing, you know, myself and other people just be completely invested. But even then there, there was these two camps, like the ones who wanted something really great for the movie and the others that were kind of using it as a party vehicle. So uh, that was kind of interesting, but in the moment, in the moment, I really, it had no effect on me. I was just completely invested. So after that was over, there was such a void in my life, like just emotionally. Uh, but I then knew what I had to do. Um, so I started to take classes, like just little classes, belonged to like little tiny theater companies, um, that were like on Vancouver Island, take the boat over and, and go to class and, and, you know, work my way up from there, usher at the theater so I could see all the plays for free, um, do that sort of thing. So that's how it all kind of started. Then I, um, auditioned for the community college theater program, which was a really big program, even though it was, I put in air quotes, community college, it was a really big deal. Um, and I auditioned and I was accepted, which blew my mind. Um, but then once I had starts, I had about three jobs and I was saving to go there. 
And at the very last minute, I took the money I saved and I moved to New York instead because all the books I had been reading, like by Uta Hagen and, you know, all the, the classics, all the teachers were in New York. So I thought, well, you know, I'm going there because I want to study with them. People were like, oh, just go straight down to L.A. And I'm like, no, 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 New York. And why, um, why New York in general? Like, what was it that attracted you? And at that time, you kind of have to, I think the audience needs to understand that things were extremely different. Everyone's so akin to the way it is now. But going back at that time, weren't a lot of the great actors from New York and the actor's studio was over there? Yeah, there was, in early 84, I moved to New York and um, I didn't know anybody. I had a place to stay because with the acting company in Vancouver, they had an affiliate in New York. So I found someone who needed a roommate on the Upper West Side. The only time I lived on the Upper West Side and had no interest after that. Um, Not really my vibe, but, you know, probably a beautiful place now. At that time, I mean, it was still, it was not the 70s, but it was still a little dicey. But that never threw me off. I had a lot of people tell me I was crazy. I shouldn't do it. You know, you get out of a car, you better run into the building right now. You know, you better get, you know, you're so afraid. And (laughs) to me, it was like, I mean, believe me, I did not underestimate New York City, but... I can't, I like lived under bridges. I lived in car parks. I lived, you know, I, I slept. I had been like, you know, raped. I had been beaten and robbed. I had my head smashed in with a tire iron and I survived. I couldn't stand for a month, literally stand up without fainting for a month after that. But, you know, I had seen a lot already. So when I hit New York, I had a really good street sense. And I used that, you know, 100% when I moved to New York. I was just really like alert, awake, very aware of everything that was going on around me. And, you know, and it was just the same, but, you know, like on, you know, I don't know, what would you say uh, on, you know, steroids, as they say, or on crack? Yeah, just confirming that you came into that with more experience than, and what age were you at the time? I was, let's see, 84, so I was um, 19, something like that, 19. So at 19, you had more experience than probably most 30-year-olds or yeah. most people in general. You had life experience. You had dealt with a lot of different things. So coming to a city like New York, you were 100% prepared and not yeah. afraid no matter what anyone was telling you. Right, wow. right. And not only not afraid, but it, again, I knew you. Ne- I would never underestimate New York City or any city for that matter because two things. One, I had a lot of people before the internet made every th- the world much smaller. I had a lot of people laugh when they say, "Oh, oh, you're from the streets of scary Vancouver." Oh my God, you know, making fun of me. But th- as they, I think, know now, a-, a-, a town could have an underbelly that is so dark and ugly and gross that it it doesn't matter because it was at that time and through the 90s say or you know even 2000s maybe 
uh, people were still, you know, thought it was just, oh, you know, beavers are crossing the street and everything's so lovely and it's so nice. If anyone said that, they are far from the streets. They don't live near the streets at all. If someone said you're from the streets of scary Vancouver, they really have never seen anything bad. I just no. because they because like you just said, every town has an underbelly. I don't, you know, there's this metaphysical thing in life where whenever you're climbing that hill, there seems to be these interesting things thrown at you. And I guess what I want to know right now is that juxtaposition of those things that are coming at you, because I don't want to know all the negative, but I know that you were determined during that time, were there any of those huge obstacles coming at you outside of having to deal with paying the bills and, and make a living? When you were pushing for that, what was happening around you? Okay, so uh, I'm going to touch on a, a little bit of everything when I talk about what happened to me when I first came to New York, which does kind of include paying the bills in this sense. So I came as a Canadian person. Um, so I had to find jobs that were under the table. And I did. I found a waitressing job um, at a, a cappuccino house, and then I went over to the village gate. Now, both of those jobs, I worked under the table. And um, why? Well, the first place didn't exist on paper. It was a mafia-owned place. And that was right on Bleecker Street across sort of catty corner from the village gate. And from the people that I met there, I sort of moved over because there was more money to be had uh, slinging drinks in a jazz bar than there was, uh, you know, with uh, cappuccinos. Um, but I did, I found that job because one of my scene partners at HB studio drove a taxi. And I said to him, you know, I gotta get a job. Like I only have, uh, I think I came with, uh, maybe 2000 American. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm really close to running out of money, but I gotta make some money. So he was kind enough to hook me up. So that's important too. Like, yeah, it's about paying the bills, but that was a big thing because without some help from a fellow struggling actor, um, you know, I, I don't know what would have happened, but I did fall into some, um, under the table work, which was very interesting in itself, as you can imagine, because the situation, um, yeah, lots, lots of things like, uh, you know, union square, um, you know, they had a gun pulled on me, uh, all kinds of stuff like that. I mean, it, I'm very, very sure it still goes on to this day, but it was very, you know, it was just a different kind of rowdy. And I think the biggest thing that, uh, it didn't stand in my way, but part of my struggle through the brick wall that you have to be to survive the streets for years, you know, it wasn't like six months I was on the street. It was like a few years. It was my teens. So I had the survival wall strong as fuck. So the biggest thing that happened to me is I took, um, acting class, voice class, speech class, body movement class, all of these things to get in touch with your emotions. So when you're doing all of that constantly, you know, daily, every week, all of them, um, what happened to me was I became severely agoraphobic. 
And because everything just exploded, all of the emotions that I had shut down of all those things I had been through came to the surface at once. And so uh, I think there was just a very small trigger, like I'm not saying the incident was small, but I mean, comparatively speaking, it was horrible. But there was, I was working at the village gate one night and about two feet from me, um, it was a salsa meets jazz night, which is a lot of Colombian drug dealers uh, were, would go to that. Um, a guy got his head blown off and he was about two feet from me. It was just someone knocked someone off and they took off. Uh, drug related. Um, And that just kind of also set in motion everything else that was going on with me. And there was like about two months that I literally, without without getting a panic attack and feeling like I was going to have a heart attack or or fall over because of, um, you know, vertigo, you know, all those feelings you get with a severe panic attack syndrome. um, It just, all of that stuff came up and I had to work through that because that was that really was what I had to use to become a good actor, which would take me a while to do because for so much effort to protect myself, that was the very stuff that I had to get to if I was going to be any kind of artist. So that was the first massive struggle that I had. Um, and so, I mean, still to this day, I can have, uh, because the fl- once the floodgates open, I mean, it, sometimes it could take years for certain memories to kick in. So that's kind of like the price you pay to, to be any kind of an artist, I think. Of course. And it's a constant forge too. And at that time, okay, so you're dealing with that. My first question is, did you know what that those panic attacks were when you were having them? Did you feel like you were losing your mind? Did you, you know, did you know, did you assess it? What exactly was happening at that time? Yeah, no, I, I really didn't know. I didn't know until I thought back a few years later and I realized, well, that's exactly what that was. At the time, I just thought it was this weird new ailment that I had that just came out of nowhere. And it was just something else I had to, you know, try my best to keep a job through and keep going to classes and literally crawl. And many, many, many times I would just have to run out of the subway because it would come on so strong. And I would have to either just walk on the street to where I was going if I was able to, or just jump in a taxi and go home because it was, it was so bad. I, I just can't even put into words. It was a hundred percent debilitating. Um, and yet that debilitating was the gold. Um, and it was, it was really, really hard. I don't wish that on anybody. And I know a lot of people do suffer that. Um, but I went to like a number of therapists and, um, you know, it, and being a street kid, it never, it's so funny because being a street kid and going to therapy isn't so great because the whole time I'm thinking to myself, yeah, you're just here for the money. I don't say that out loud, but I'm thinking that I'm going through the, I'm doing my work. But it's in the back of my head when they say, okay, our time's up, what does that kick in? That kicks in that whole 
family rejection thing. Yeah, you're spilling your your soul to somebody, sharing things that you know you wouldn't tell anybody, and oh, time's up. See you next week. And that was sort of something that really had to adjust to that as well, because that almost felt like it, it was really strange to me. I don't know. I just don't know. It's, it was really weird. And yet it was important, very, very important that, that I did it. And I remember one of my last thera- therapists that I had, um, I remember telling him all the time, again, this is my resistance to all, all the stuff that had happened to me um, coming up. Whenever he would get me to talk about certain things about it, I would just like get this wave of intense tiredness. And I would say, I have to go to sleep. Like I, I have. To. So he would say, cause he was really good. He would say, okay, lay down on the couch there and go to sleep. And of course you would lay down and you couldn't go to sleep, but he was kind of showing like, you know, if that's what you really want to do, then, then do it. But he was showing me looking back <laughs> that that's really not what I was doing. My avoidance was so intense that it was willing to do anything, tell my brain anything before it wanted to let me feel what I had to feel. And so you were utilizing all of this kind of spontaneous uh, emotion coming from your anxiety, coming from all of these past traumas, and now using that as an as an actor and going in and learning how, right? Did you feel that therapy in any way kind of detracted from that? Because I remember reading this one thing from David Lynch, and uh, he said he went into a therapist one time, and he had asked, "Will this hurt my creativity in any way?" And the therapist <laughs> said it might. He said, "Well, have a nice day," <laughs> and he walked out. I, you know, it's funny because I had spoke to an actor I was going uh, to to one of the classes with, and that's the reason he would never go. I, ironically, it's twofold. I want to answer that with first at the time, no, because it was so bad that I had the anxiety. Um, and that was not from therapy. It was from the acting class. So the, the panic attacks and the inability to walk down the street, I had to deal with it some way besides just pills. Um, and so that's why I was there. I just needed to get a handle on being able to physically function, walk down the street, get to class, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but fast forward just for a moment, um, for fun recently, I was, uh, thinking about doing a different type of therapy where certain things would, you know, it could sort of calm down certain elements, if you will. And, uh, the, the woman was so wonderful. She said to me, oh, so you're writing an autobiography. She said, you might not want to do this yet. (laughs) And I said, you're right. And that was it one time. So, I mean, it depends if, as far as your creativity, I, I agree completely with Lynch. I think when it, you're so young and you're right off the street and you can't function, it's, it's, you know, you need it then you need that hump. Um, he probably, I don't want to guess what he, David Lynch was going through, but he, I'm guessing that he probably was able to, you know, walk from A to B. Okay. So 
you know, if you got the basics, you're probably better off not going to therapy and just, you know, using your stuff. And I do agree with that, using it creatively. Sure. Because a lot of people don't realize how crippling those situations could be, um, especially anxiety to an extreme. It's it's something so unique. It's like, comes on like an asthma attack. No, it's, you know, it's kind of like you're you're somewhere and you're fine. And then the next step is you're, you're, you're completely uh, inhibited by everything mm-hmm. around you and everything's closing in. And a lot of people just don't realize what that feeling is like. Yes. Exactly. Um, but you pressed forward and you, what was the, okay. So during that time, what was the next kind of major job, so to speak in acting? What was the next role that you got that you felt, you know, after the, the fabulous stains, like what was the next thing that kind of was, was iconic in that lineage that you achieved on the way over? Um, through the first few years while I was doing the, the classes and all that stuff, I did no less than say 50 student films just to get in front of a camera and exercise myself uh, creatively. And also belonged to no less than 20 different theater companies doing plays constantly. Um, and then I start by the late eighties, just four or five years later, I started to get smaller roles like in the movie band, um, and stuff like that. But in 94, when I did abducted to the reunion, um, it's, it's most people hate that movie, but the interesting thing about that movie was number one, they flew me back to Vancouver to shoot it. And number two, of all like the indie New York City underground films that I that I was doing at the time, um, this was a million dollar movie, which in comparison, especially in 94, is a much bigger deal. So uh, it was, again, a movie that didn't come off as intended. However, myself and I think the other actresses as well, threw ourselves into the role so intensely for the month we were shooting. And it was just like, so like left really the expression, nothing on the table. Really, that was true. I remember going to the airport um, and just being like, uh, just a rag, but in the best feeling, like the best feeling, like, oh my God, if this is what I could do every day, just have that kind of, you know, expelling of every creative thing in your body and soul. It felt so great. And so that movie, and it played on TV a lot. Um, again, mo- 99% of the people don't like the movie. Okay, no problem. But what it did for me was gave me that feeling and um, it was just such an exhilarating feeling. And then a couple of years later, I did Tromeo and Juliet. And cult-wise, that would sort of be the next big thing. Yeah, I remember, um, I think I was going to film school when Tromeo and Juliet came out. It was getting rave reviews. Uh, but one thing I wanted to point out is that like, your personal philosophy is pretty evident to me, is that it really is about the art. And it really is about um, 
because you you're in, you've been part of so many different projects in terms of their budget level as that it really is just you're diving into you know, whether it be a play in some local playhouse or it be a network TV show or a radio show uh, serious radio like you've done all of this and so it's like it just seems like you're you are taking everything that you do seriously and putting in 100% in that and a lot of people don't have that but as you're going along if you could describe to me what that personal philosophy is as to how your door is open for any project really that is interesting to you and that you want to be a part of um what what is that where does that come from i can say that um through those years much of the years as a matter of fact the idea of just you know this this is really the only thing that like speaks to my soul is to be able to express and feel like i i just you know gave something that there's only one way to give it and that's creatively and I, it's not really a philosophy per se i think one of the um upswings and yet downswings for myself seeing it took me a long time to find my acting sea legs I wasn't born with it. Maybe I was, but because of the, again, because surviving the streets, it was such a long haul to get through to the other end. It wasn't till towards the end of the nineties that I think I was starting to do some good work that I wouldn't cringe watching, for example. But besides that, um, I would say something that it's a weird thing thing but that I I couldn't not do if I did it over because I was I I come from nothing and so I'm always for like I really want to do things that are very cinematically punk rock in a lot of ways so when people have projects and they have like everything they got in their project you know it doesn't have the top names and it doesn't have you know the paycheck and it doesn't have a lot of these things i am just i see their their desire and their their want to do it and i want to help and so through the years i think i've also been in a lot of things that were my choice and i'm happy to help there's no regrets However, that's what they were. They were like it was me showing up and supporting somebody. And those very things are are often and especially in the media, but often the things that are used against me. Oh, look at this garbage she did. It's terrible. And you know, I'm maybe I disagree, maybe I agree, but it's not I never came at it like a professional manager like anybody would ever counsel me to do as a matter of fact they would counsel me not to do it but i always because i came from you know the dirt literally that i always wanted to be that you know always want to be there for other people coming up and i see the talent and then how it kind of kicks you in the ass i have to say is that when you do do that 
and you're there and you're, you're helping and all this stuff. Then you see like, sometimes people go on, do things and they're sort of like in certain circumstances, certain ones you see, Oh yeah. Okay. Sort of like a stepping stone type of thing we, I got going here. Okay. That's, that's cool. Hey, you know, whatever, as long as I get to do what I want to do, that's cool. But there's, when people sort of like write about you or judge you, they, they only look at like the surface stuff. You know, they only look at, you know, some of the maybe sillier, ridiculous things or the stuff you're like, oh, this would be a blast to do. Not should I do it? You know, I'm sitting down like a lawyer. Should I do this? You know, um, whereas many, many people run their careers like that. Um, I've never been that guy. Um, and it's been both brought me tons of joy and tons of criticism, equal parts. So um, that's not really a philosophy like you asked me about, but that's kind of how and why um, a lot of the uh, stuff that I have done has gotten done or why it got done, I guess. Do you think though, maybe we're coming into a time where people aren't so uh, finite in their judgments and who cares? Honestly, that I mean, there are people trolling the greatest living, in my opinion right now, mm. one of the right, greatest living filmmakers, Martin Scorsese, there are people trolling him as if he's horrible. I mean, that's the zeitgeist we live in. And then on the other end of the spectrum is what I'm getting at is you have someone like Nicolas Cage who will make all, I mean, literally in, in your sense, go out and do so many different varieties of level projects, but still have like in the midst of it, mm. like he'll make something like Pig or Mandy, and then he'll go and do something crazy and then come back and do something else. And I've seen in your lineage, you've been able to do that. Um, and I don't, from my perspective as a, as a movie maker, like I don't think that hurts you. And I don't know why those rules were put in place. Do you think at all, and I'm not getting conspiratorial, but you know, the mm. movie making, which is an art form, but it's also a business, was monopolized for a very long time. Do you think that's another way to monopolize the business is to kind of say, well, we don't want these actors, these good actors doing these movies from these weird people in the middle of nowhere because we want to keep a handle on this. Could it could that be some kind of like rules and union unionized shoots and all of these things yeah, that kind no. of keep things in place? I'm not trying to get you in trouble, but you know, what, what's your perspective on that? I couldn't agree with you more. I think that um, it is completely different now, completely different. Everybody is getting trolled. Everybody is now experiencing the same as say it was before. And their peers are not buying into it, but yes, you you were getting thousands and thousands of people trolling the greats, and it is it is so ridiculous. It's funny, but at the same time, it's just endless. And you think, wow, like it's like who lifted up the rock? And I mean, we'll never get this shit back under the rock. You know what I mean? It's done. It's done. Um, for now until things swing, just like the pendulum always does. But that's an excellent point that you bring up because yes, everybody is getting it now. And that is true. Um, I think it's, um, it's, it, uh, it could be conspiratorial. I mean, Nicolas Cage is probably like the best example you could ever think of to bring up as well, because 
he is like someone that I go, that's a career that I would love because here he is going ape shit that we all want to see and love. And then here he is over here being genius dramatically. And we love that. Um, couldn't be a better example. And often I say to people, I would love to be the female Nicolas Cage. I would love that. You want somebody to be dramatic and you know they could do it. You can come to me. You want somebody to completely lose their shit. Like for real, it'd be believable. And yet there's maybe some humor to it. Come to me. And I've always kind of felt that way because I love playing the extremes. And during all of this, the biggest conspiracy I've ever felt is that because of who I am, how I look, um, and my vibe, I have never in the beginning, 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 when I was auditioning for all of these wrong roles for me, you know, in films, like these so-called straight roles, if you will, um, nobody ever, ever, you know, two, three callbacks, but then you would never get it because you were never that girl next door, that particular type, that really, really particular type. And I'm not talking about the one to 3% of actors working in Hollywood. It's more like, you know, even the ones who just do one movie, but I was never because of who I am, that girl next door type. So I, I, once I really got that, I also understood, okay, it's going to be the, the other roles, the, the ones I could just bring all kinds of crazy shit to and just like creative crazy shit, not stupid, you know, meaningless, but just all the stuff that we love, you know, all the, all of the character actors and they're usually men, right? Steve Buscemi, like, you know, all the, the crazy roles that he did that we love to see him do and all of these wonderful actors. And there was very, very few female versions of them, um, you know, and, and that's kind of like where I, I feel myself. I don't want to say see myself because I'm not comparing myself to their level, but that's where I feel myself is in that same oddball indie world doesn't answer your question again. I'm sorry about that. Because it's an ongoing conversation. And here's the thing, like, so this is a new age uh, that I've noticed. And again, I just come back from working for network TV. And now my perspective has completely changed. And what happened in the last three years, I've noticed now there are <laughs> stars on TikTok, you know, it's like, what? A, wait a second. Now something's changed here. Now the good thing that came from that, in my opinion, is that the consciousness of the audience has changed. They don't give a damn mm. if a movie's made from a studio or not, and that is evident with yeah. movies, let's say, like Terrifier or stuff like that. Um, all of these movies now, they just want to see something. Now, what a wonderful opportunity now for all of the unsung artists, actors musicians, because it's the age of self-publishing, writers, where everyone in the world was duped to think that these people who you saw throughout time mm -hmm. were the only talented people yep. at their craft. That is far from the truth. So now, because of the internet people, the one good thing they did for the rest of mm -hmm. us is that they yes. changed the consciousness of the audience. And now the audience is like, I don't give a shit if this comes from a network or not. I don't care if it comes from a studio or not. And now that's on us 
as yes. artists to seize the opportunity because the equipment's there. And the other thing is you as an actor are capable of so much. You you show it in your range and that is only a good dance if the dance is done right between actor, director, and filmmaker. So now you have this floodgate of filmmakers that are that are voracious. They're ready. They're saying, wow, audience doesn't care anymore. I'm going to seize this opportunity. Now, do you see that as a good future? Because I, I mean, I do, but I'm just curious on how you feel. I really do. And the reason is uh, this. Um, we all have better equipment, access to things that are, are better than we did before. Um, and so that indie film, for example, um, could be TV as well and, and podcasts and everything, writing, everything. Um, our stuff, our work can now look better without having, you know, certain access to things that we just would never have access to before. Like we're not making films with just the ends of, of, of neg, you know, film reels because that's all we can afford and they're kind of crappy. Uh, we're just, we have this, the same access to a lot of the stuff so it can look and feel and, and express itself much, much better than it ever could. Now, I also like that the audience is savvy because looking back, you know, just to the 90s and even 2000s, if they saw an independent film, it would have a certain look to it. And the first thing they would say is, this looks like a porn. And it was just a vibe of a non-Hollywood movie. That's all it was. There was nothing pornographic about it. It was just that it was shot. And the only way they could describe it in their mind or the only thing they could associate it with was a porno. So they would it would start to play and they'd be like, oh, this looks like a porno. And so that's gone. That's a beautiful thing that that, that, that saying is gone. And I love that. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, to, everything has two sides, right? Like we were talking about, you know, Scorsese, Scorsese getting trolled. We have that, but we have that. And the other side is we have this wonderful access to people who are more open-minded and get it. And they're willing to read and watch and, and, and listen to us. Sure. And as you said earlier, the pendulum is, its I truly believe it's going to swing back in the other direction. And it might be this kind of new age that we're, we've never seen where, like I said, the consciousness of the audience is completely different now. And I knew this, honestly, it was confirmed for me. I'm sitting in a diner in Florida and I hear across the room, two people going on and on about Terrifier. Okay. <laughs> like, And, you know, that's amazing. That's so amazing. That's fantastic that that happened. That no one gives a damn if, you know, there's a major star in it or if it came from a studio. They just want to see it now. And that, you know, you worked with Troma for a number of years. Troma was ahead of that years ago, years ago. They were doing things now that, you know, things are being done and they're being celebrated to an extreme. Um, can you tell me a little bit about, and I know we're backtracking in your history a little bit, but can you tell me about uh, your first uh, experience with trauma and what that was like and where it led? 
Sure. I started working with trauma about 92. And I was uh, at first doing modeling because they would pick up movies and they would reshoot the cover with people who weren't in the movie. Uh, so I was doing some of that. We were doing bumpers for uh, cable channels in be it Germany or, you know, Netherlands or something. They were doing like a trauma night. So then they would have these sort of bumper, you know, uh skits, if you will, in between the movies. So we would shoot those over at the trauma studios in Hill's Kitchen. And um, was I was doing a lot of that. Then when Comedy Central, which when they started out, they were called Ha, H-A exclamation mark, I believe, um, or maybe it was Ha Ha, I don't know. Uh, so they had this, uh, it was a takeoff on the um, 1-800 um, infomercial, which was just massively, you couldn't, you know, turn the TV on without one being on. So then they did their own, the trauma. Um, oh my God, the trauma. It was a trauma infomercial. <laughs> I can't remember the title. Uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, it, we were, I was doing that. And um, <laughs> uh, next thing you know, Lloyd, put, I was in the middle of shooting that and Lloyd puts down the script and he says, the script for Trauma and Juliet, read it. And if there's anything you want to audition for, let me know. So I read it and I was like, there's a lot of great roles in here. Now this was before James Gunn uh, started working there, which was like just minutes after that, so to speak. And he rewrote it. And then, you know, everybody, all the women basically read for Julia and then they cast them from there. They just, so, so they could just see them, you know, cause there was uh, obviously more words uh, with that character. Um, and then we were doing Tromeo and Juliet. And, um, one thing I got to say, like James Gunn's super, super cool. Even back then. I mean, I know he was, uh, he had to do everything, um, as per Lloyd, like his way. Cause he was learning. He hadn't made a movie yet. And, um, I know that, um, Jane Jensen who played, uh, Juliet and I had to rehearse in this, um, space in Times Square and so James was like, okay, well, let's rehearse. Like, you know, we're going to do the movie. We're going to be topless. And so I said to him, no, I definitely will do it when I have to do it, but I'm, I don't want to just do it. Like it's, you know, casual. I don't know why, but in my head, I'm just like, I'm not comfortable rehearsing. And yet I know I will because like game on when you're making a movie, um, and he was like, okay. And we didn't have to do it, but I remember that moment because those moments always stick out. So, cause you kind of like put the line in the sand and you see what happens. So it was one of those moments, um, just because I just wasn't comfortable. Um, and then when we shot, of course, no problem at all. And, uh, it was just, funny, but it was a really, really good experience because again, Lloyd doesn't make his movies fast. Unlike a lot of people sort of think he does. They always say, or they used to say, I should say, he makes his movies for 10 cents in two days. No, those are probably the movies that he picks up, but his movies are four to six weeks shooting and they're never less than a quarter of a million. They're usually more like a half a million dollars. Um, and so you know, try to tell anybody that it's, it's not reflected in anybody's paycheck, but, um, it's all money. That's that you spend making a movie for that length of time. It, you just do. 
messages. We'll be right back. There are those who say that this quiet town holds many secrets. Legend has it that beneath this very tower, a dark force had its eyes set on the children. We were told that what was going on there was for the benefit of humanity. What would you say to the people who say, well, all these children were kidnapped and murdered and you were a part of it, what would you tell them? I did approve of it, but there was nothing I could do about it. They wanted a large number of programmed boys to be used for mind control operations. And there are others who say it's still happening to this day. I don't know, I for myself find it a little suspicious that all the evidence has been conveniently destroyed. Let's put it this way. If you're sitting there with 20 guns pointed at you, what are you going to do? Whatever the hell they want! Watch Montauk Chronicles now for free on Tubi, Plex, Roku, and available for download on Amazon and Apple TV. This series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanations, but not necessarily the only ones, to the mysteries we will examine. seems like that film company has it was way ahead of its time and there are trauma movies being made all over now on television everywhere i mean it you know they were just so way ahead of their time and i don't i don't think enough people talk about that in regard to that company and 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 kaufman so it's amazing that you know you were part of that that era where it started to switch over because tromeo and juliet was actually respected uh, I remember reading about it in the Village Voice, and it got all great reviews. And I wonder, was it around the same time that Baz Luhrmann came out with that movie with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio? I, I don't remember a hundred percent. Was it around like a similar time period? Yes, it was. It was. It's very funny because the the three movies of the few that I've done with Lloyd, but um, I guess Citizen Toxie would fall into that category as well. But there was three movies that I did that had very interesting timing and Tromeo and Juliet was one of them because Romeo and Juliet with uh, DiCaprio came out literally the exact same time. And then it was funny to me when uh, Terra Firmer came out because it was exactly the same time that Cecil B. Demented came out. Again, very different movies, but they had a lot in common. Um, and then, of course, this one is is more per Lloyd than me, but I have to laugh. Uh, Shakespeare Shitstorm came out when The Whale came out. <laughs> okay, that's a real, that's a stretch. The other two make complete sense, but that one's a stretch. Uh, but yeah, it's it's pretty funny. 
Um, and the funny thing was too, that you did have a lot of the, the indie press and I'm talking about the upscale indie press, like the village voice, um, that had a lot of say and a lot of like people listened to them and they preferred Tromeo and Juliet, um, just because it had a different aesthetic that they were down for. Um, and yeah, it was, it's great. And people ha- make kind of, if you would call them, uh, trauma movies all the time now. And I think Lloyd is getting a lot of respect that he never got for a lot of years because, you know, even someone like Trent Haga, um, when he moved out to LA, the first thing people would tell him, if you want to work in this town, you take everything that has trauma on it off your resume. You like wash it off all of it. <laughs> and like he was, you know, line producer. He wrote wow. citizen. Like he had like good damn credits and they told him you get rid of that shit. And now very, very different time. You know, they've remade toxic Avenger with these big stars. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't know, you know, probably maybe to a lesser degree, but I don't think the reaction it would be as, you know, extreme because also you have the successful James Gunn, you know, why would you wipe a movie where you worked with him on it off of your resume? Um, so yeah, times have, have changed. Right. And that's, that's why I feel like all the work you've put in over the years and the variety of things that I'd like to talk a little bit more about, you know, the stuff you did for TV, the stuff you did for serious radio, but all of that work. Um, you know, it's leading towards this new place in, in production. Uh, you know, we might be on further along the precipice, but definitely somewhere that hasn't a hundred percent hit the bullseye yet, but it will. And that's going to be a glorious time because what I believe I'm starting to see is, yeah, we've had technology change, but it doesn't help when all you have is just either people reviewing gear on YouTube or doing TikTok videos. But now people need to learn how to use that technology to its fullest, and then you can compete with the studios. And what I'm seeing is, and what I just did, is that now you have people competing with the networks where I had made network shows, right? And you're making these indie network shows that are actually better in quality, and you have full creative control, and you're getting it out to the same audience. That's another important thing is distribution. You can get distri- you can get those movies now distributed to the world on streaming, and even getting physical media done is somewhat free through certain things like Kunaki and stuff like that. So it's like it's a different world completely, and that's the be- this is the beginning of that. And so where indie cinema is going to go might be king at some point. You'll see all these studios fall apart and dissipate. And honestly, that was my dream since uh, I was walking around New York City as a crazy film student. I was like, Uh screw this. You know, let's destroy all of this. You know, it's a monopoly. So, and I feel like you were were one of the voices that were always a part of that. Yes. I I was there with the flag, folks. <laughs> but I was, but I was. But yes, absolutely. Absolutely true. Now, and saying that, okay, so you were there. Yes, you were. And you were always waving that independent flag, but, um, and not to, you know, life is part of those ups and downs. Can you tell me some of the things that may have gone wrong when you were there to help? You know, uh, may, maybe it was a situation that you felt you shouldn't have or it, it worked against you. Yeah, no, abs- absolutely. Yes, yes. Okay. So, um, 
Yeah, there was this time I went down south to do um, a movie, and it was a really promising movie because the director was the most incredible artist. He was a, you know, photographer. He was many types of artists, the exact type of uh, person that you would like to see, you know, handling a movie that you're in, for example, because they have so much, you know, artistic, um, artistic values and, and taste and, and you dig what they, they do in, in different, uh, mediums and, and stuff like that. So I was very excited to be there. Um, I literally had gone from a different film shoot directly over to this one. And um, uh, I was handling a what should be a prop weapon, like a huge knife, it was a machete. And I uh, was to like stab into this uh, person in the movie, but it's uh, obviously just a a doll on the ground, um, and just wail, wail on him. Right. So we did it a few times, um, with this, the fake one, um, machete. And, um, they said, this one doesn't look good. So we're going to use a different prop. So, but you know, we're losing light and the light was going down. We're shooting sort of like an, an, sort of underground. It was like a basement, but it was like all dirt. It was like a cave sort of thing, but it was under a house. And, um, and they said it was exact same motion, just a different prop. Okay. No problem. So did the same exact thing for what would be, we were all thinking the last take or one of the last couple takes and picked it up and just wailed down on this dummy that was out of the frame. And Anybody who knows machetes knows that they have no hitches on them. So when I grabbed with all of my might and jumped up in the air and, you know, tagged the dummy with the uh, prop, uh, my hand slipped right down with the same fury through the blade and um, cut all of my four fingers, except for the bone, off my right hand. And, um, yeah, two operations and two years later and, you know, having to go through addiction to painkillers because of it, um, everything, everything, two years, three years, if you want to, yeah, probably three years, because if you include the rehabilitation of being able to even partially use my hand again, uh, uh, the pain of getting any kind of feeling back into it. Cause the, you know, the tendons and nerves and everything had to be reattached. And, um, I had just got a property out in uh, Pittsburgh that I lost everything, like, uh, went bankrupt, lost everything. Like everything I had saved for, uh, was gone, um, on that end. And then on the other end, besides the, the pain and the, you know, hand handicap, so to speak, and all that stuff, Um, it brand, it was 2002. So you have this sort of somewhat new medication out oxycodone. So I was prescribed that, you know, hundred pills a bottle with maybe like six refills, take two every six hours. I'm just following the instructions on the bottle. I have no idea what it is, right? Painkiller. So after the first night, I was like, called my doctor. I was like, you know, I'm really itchy. This is really weird. He says, yeah, that'll go away. Don't worry about it. He didn't know any better either. This was early on in this fiasco 
of the painkiller hell that we're in now, right? Uh, but when I finished the course of painkillers, I got really sick. So I called him up and I had to get some more and I basically weaned myself off, but it was no different than doing junk. It was no different because even weaning myself off, I had about 10 days. It was kind of textbook. I had 10 days of being so sick in bed. I had a little pug at the time and I was so sick with withdrawal. I couldn't get out of bed. I barely could put like newspaper on the floor and she's such a good girl. She went to the bathroom on the newspaper cause I couldn't get her outside. I was just, I was so sick. Um, and that was it. I mean like, so I, I it was just, it was not just one element, it was, you know, financially, physically, addiction, you know, all of these things came from that one moment in time. So, you know, that was, and then that, then on top of it, it took at least five years, I would say, to feel any sort of comfort to let myself go on a set again. That took longer than anything else, to be honest. And yeah, you know, a lot of people don't realize how quickly one thing could lead to the other thing and how honestly it could, you know, and, and your situation of coming out of that is shows a lot of strength. And did you feel once you were out of it, did you feel like you were a hundred percent out of it? Um, I did for the most part. I mean, I, I'm lucky because I've never been someone who drinks. Uh, so I didn't, that didn't sort of factor into, um, triggering anything off in that department but I had to have more than one surgery. So going into the other surgeries, it was just way too painful to not have it. And so I did take it again, knowing exactly what would happen, but knowing going in. So I never took nearly the amount uh, that was prescribed. And then also it, at least tapering off and understanding what was going on with me. Um, coming off at a second time, it was sort of like, okay, well, I know the hell of which I'm going to live, but I, at least I know what's going on because I didn't even know what was going on the first round. But by the time the operations were all finished, you know, it was kind of like I had to set aside 10 to 12 days and just, you know, lost pain, horrible nightmare. It was really bad. It was really bad. But I mean, there, there you go. And I, I don't know, you have to be super careful, I think. And, and I don't take uh, medication lightly or easily. I just, um, I know that it was probably just that pill because that's, that's the fucking devil's pill right there. But, you know, I don't know, did it trigger addiction in general for me? Well, I never went there, but it's possible. Or was it just that pill? I don't know. It's, it's destroyed so many lives. It's, it's impossible to say. Sure. Sure. It's, it's destroyed people all over. Now from this situation and obviously all the results that followed, you have, you have a different protocol about safety when doing an indie film. I'm sure like, is there something contractual that you sign up for? You ask a lot of questions, like how do you assess what the situation is going to be like from now on? Right. Well, you know, I, it's funny because at first 
um, when I would, because I always assumed, it's really strange. I always assumed people had said insurance. I just did. I don't know. I just, I was used to working with people who had, if they had nothing else, they had that. And so after that, I would ask, and then this one gentleman who's a beautiful person, and he did not mean this in a bad way, but it always like stuck with my head because in the moment I was like, I don't like that you said, I know you're being nice, but I don't like that you said that. He said, ah, uh, because you're you, Debbie, I got it for that one day you're shooting because it was just a little tiny cameo and we were doing just um, uh, fake bullet uh shots, but they did it sort of reverse where the string would pull the, the blood bag. And, you know, then they would have to, you know, uh, CGI the string out later on and, and do it. It was extremely safe, but I thought to myself, well, it shouldn't be for the day that I'm here. It should be every day because it's not just the person's life that you could destroy. Believe me, it's yours too. As, as a filmmaker, I mean, of course, you never, never, never want, you know, uh, even if you're a sociopath and you don't care what happens to people. Um, there's a lot of those in our business, too. I mean, there's a lot of great people. There's a lot of sociopaths. And, you know, even if you don't want it, don't care about the people, which makes you an asshole. But with that being said, you should do it for you. Do you want to lose your house? Do you want to lose your whatever the hell you have? Sure. I mean, one of the biggest onset disasters being what happened on the set of The Twilight Zone with John Landis and um, you know Vic Morrow and those two kids getting killed during that scene. And that changed things. And I think for the indie world, your story should definitely, you know, I, I know it got around, but it, it should be something as a, as a rule to wake up indie filmmakers and make them realize they have to be safe 100%. Um, I wanted to ask this, and I know I'm, I'm not like trying to dredge uh, bad stuff up, but this is, this is a result of you being out there. And a lot of times you're, you know, you're a beautiful woman and you're in all these different movies. Did you ever have to deal with a stalker or stalkers? Yeah, a lot of that, you know, and it's funny because a lot of that stuff, um, happened in my particular case more, uh, with when the internet really started to flow because everybody is so accessible like we were saying, everybody's very accessible. And, um, you know, the, I, the couple times I got one time, I actually went to, um, the police, like I just, I made a report and they received that and it calmed down. And a couple of other times, um, other people jumped and they didn't even know my situation, but this person was just a, that type of person. They got jumped on by other people who basically doxed them before that word meant anything. Like it was in a chat room long ago. And they were like, yeah, we see you in your, your white van at this address. And, and they just scared the shit out of him. And so that was good, ended up being good for me. I mean, it wasn't even in that particular moment, uh, about me, but it, that was great. Um, I think you have to be willing to go all the way. Like you really have to, um, have no fear of, of reporting people. I mean, you really do because that, that's, that seems to be the only way that, um, 
that people, because if you just cower, never cower, ever, ever, ever cower, document everything, document everything and never cower and, and, you know, report your heart away, but never lie. I mean, there's the other side of it, right? The whole me too thing saw both sides. It saw some really horrible things, um, come to, you know, more awareness. I wouldn't say to a stop, that's being, you know, um, Pollyanna about it. But um, the other side is too, you know, there's there's been some people who have destroyed people who, for whatever reason, maybe they didn't fulfill their end of a bargain, be it work in a film or whatever the case may be. And I'm not talking about the Weinsteins. I'm just saying um, that both things do exist. So don't be the asshole that, that reports things that aren't true. Just, just be true about this stuff. And, and, uh, at the same time, not afraid. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think it's very dangerous to have a believe all fill in the blank movement because the issue is, of course, you should take into consideration if someone's saying they were assaulted. But what I'm saying is that opens the door because there are liars in every human form and they will take advantage of that because a liar is something you know it's it's pathological liars by nature they can manipulate people they're like perfect believe all me movement i get to get away with this now because i want to take revenge and that's happened you know and a lot of people didn't realize that but after this um you know after these things after the tragedy and you getting through the injury that you had and it wasn't just an injury it was all of the things that came after you were after that part of um, a really popular serious radio show, right? And that was after this incident mm-hmm. and also a television series. Can we, can you tell me more about that? Yeah. Okay. Um, I started working with uh, Chris Valentino um, who he was working with a group of people. Um, they were starting up what was then known as the scream channel. And that sort of mutated into Fangoria. Um, the owners bought the magazine from the publisher because he was retiring and it was up for sale. So they thought, well, you know, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get this. And so they did. And so all of the things that we were working on, uh, which included, uh, you know, radio, TV, all this, all different, uh, facets of it, publication, obviously, um, turned into Fangoria. So we, it's, there's a funny story to it as well. Um, Mike Castell, who prior to this was a producer for NFL, like he was a football guy, like producing, you know, working with all the cameras on, on, you know, at, at a game and, you know, a very, very top pro guy. Uh, but he had never done radio before. Uh, but it was me and him that were putting this show together. So it was very interesting because th- this I find fascinating. I like the behind the scenes stuff. At first, they were considering um, Bruce Campbell. And they even, you know, spoke with him about it. And he was interested in doing it. You know, they could just set up his his place where he lives. So he stays there and does it. It was a possibility. But remember, the year it was, it was 2006. And when it, you know, the, the show started, so it was like, what, 2004 or five when they were talking with Bruce Campbell. So keep that in mind because now it doesn't seem possible, but the people at Sirius didn't know who he was. So they were like, we don't really, 
because they were so corporate. You have to understand they're so corporate, so not horror, right? Everyone is so hip to horror now. You have to understand, like, it just wasn't the case back then. And so then I said, okay, well, um, you know, Joe Bob Briggs is local, John Bloom. He's great. I personally know the guy. Uh, I used to write for his, um, we are the weird. Um, well, it was sort of, it was like a newsletter more than anything. It wasn't a proper magazine, but it was, you know, it was amazing. It had a great circulation. And, um, I said, you know, he's been on, uh, the movie channel. He's been on uh, TNT, you know, and all this stuff. He's, he's really a good, good, solid name. And he'd be a great co-host. They were like, well, we don't know him. And I was like, oh my God, like, what, who am I going to, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, these are like, these are really good (laughs) fucking names of great people, right? Like really good fucking people. Um, and then they said, um, because he was in Long Island and a couple people, um, in the business part of Scream, not serious, um, knew, obviously had met and knew D Snyder and they said, D Snyder, he's done a horror movie and he loves horror movies and he's, you know, metal and, you know, he's that those worlds live hand in hand and he would be great. You know, he's local and he's, you know, uh, so they spoke to him and he was very interested. He loved doing radio. He'd done it before and he still does it to this day. And, um, so they were kind of like, well, we know who do Snyder is, but do a couple of, um, tests, pilots, so we recorded a couple of pilots. We had people on, like name, name, name people on. Um, and they were never aired, like through the the show. Uh, but yeah, they they heard it and it was me and him and we had guests on and they okayed it. And there you go. We had four years on uh, Sirius. And uh, the last six months were reruns because one of the uh, people who had come in to uh, Fangoria towards the end uh, had a, was just one of these strange people that we, we speak of um, that doesn't have all the best intentions as it were. And so there was, um, Dee was away and it was Tony and I on one Friday night and we were talking about something and we had a good laugh as we did about many things. Um, but this person decided that, you know, it was their friend and it was in bad taste, which by the way, it wasn't, you know, Tony Timpone, he's as nice as the day is long. I mean, that man, you don't get nicer than Tony Timpone. (laughs) You just don't. And so the fact that he was able to twist and turn and mutate this, uh, one or two sentence piece into something that wasn't even there. And Sirius wanted us to stay so bad. Literally they held for six months, they played repeats, but as it was to happen, that's kind of when as a company it came apart. And so everything just ended, but it was amazing. I mean, I had the most incredible co-hosts, including yourself. I had, um, you know, people, the stars of Dexter come on to co-host. This was sort of like uh, prior to quite the the onslaught we have of podcasts now. So it really was the 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 stop 
the stock ground for all things horror, right? It was, it was after that, not long after that, but it was after that Rue Morgue started up um, like a podcast or radio thing um, and did a fantastic job. But Vangoria Radio really was the precursor to the explosion. And then once people could podcast, man, everybody could do the show that they always wanted to hear. And it just went crazy after that. Yeah, it's it did. It predated all of those podcasts. And it was unique at the time. It was a fantastic show. Um, and it's so odd how one person's bad decisions or poor lack of vision uh, can ruin something. But it happens, as you know. It's ha- It just continues to happen. But when you have an age of, and I don't mean self-publishing in any kind of derogatory way, it has a different meaning now, but when you have that age where the people approach it professionally and they they produce things um, with skill and intention, and you're going to have a better future with this stuff. This stuff's going to last as long as it needs to, and we won't have these psychotic people getting in the way of, of great work, you know? I just... Um, read a book uh, called Masterpiece in Disarray. It was about David Lynch making Dune and how much of a horrible situation it was for him to have that film seized from him at the end, have no consultation in the editing and get completely screwed. It's something that damaged him for so, so long and that he never took another major studio picture like that again. It was always his, his way or the highway. Mm -hmm. And how could you not understand that? And so you know that as an actor, and you've hosted great radio shows, and then you directed. Um, can you tell me about a uh, model hunger? Because I know we don't have too much time left, and I want to I want to cover some of this stuff. Yeah, get that get that in there. We ha- I I had um twenty two days uh, to direct model hunger, and what was interesting, um, you know, everything is for a reason. And, you know, even warts and all, I say that, um, I'm fully aware of its warts and, and the good stuff. So I, I am very like aware. Um, with that being said, it was a really interesting and fantastic experience in many ways because it came out of this, this massive, um, A couple weeks prior to the beginning of the shoot, had to change up a number of people involved because before we were talking about people's intentions and things like that, that they, they should be at least positive. They don't have to be exactly like yours, but they should just be positive. And so because of this, there was a number of people, there was some shifting around and redoing of, uh, of, uh, uh, people behind the camera and in front of the camera. So with that said, um, and all of that chaos that something like that can happen and bring only a couple weeks prior, um, there was just making that movie from, uh, my vantage point of directing it was, it was so amazing. Um, I just, I really learned so much and I, and I really, I just, I lived for uh, as much about the details, whether it was seen or not, that was just so incredibly important to me. And whether it was captured or not, um, in my mind, I just had, 
uh, there were so many things, unlike acting, which is you're just, you're really, your job is to completely embody and bring everything you have to this one person. This is sort of like, oh, okay. Now we could do, you know, this with, you know, the, the set has to say something. What is this set says that this set doesn't say? And it was just the most amazing experience as far as being creative and just understanding like, oh my God, time and just, you know, more money and not even a lot more money, but just a little bit more money and time, man, you could just get lost in the details and just making something so incredibly beautiful and, and just perfect. But things don't always go that way when you're on a budget and, uh, time constraints. So there was a lot of things to sacrifice, but there was just so much that happened that I was just, that was just joyful to, to watch and be a part of. And, and, uh, and I just have to say, be a part of, because there were so many people putting so much work into it. And I just, you know, my admiration for the job and everybody's work was just really limitless. It was incredible, incredible. And, you know, and the many, many things happened, both good and bad. I mean, it was, it was a struggle because it was recorded in such a way that um, it took about a year in post to get it to the point where it was, it was, um, when we shot it, it was recorded mixed. So it took my editor about a year to get just the audio to the point where he could start working with it and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, who, it always has to fall on you, doesn't it? That that's your fault. I mean, we could say all these things happened, but we must must always say that you know what my mistake because you know you do, if you don't know something, that's on you. I know how you feel, but there are forces outside of you that, especially time. Stanley Kubrick even admitted, "There's no way I'd be able to do this if I didn't have the time I had." So I imagine if Stanley Kubrick was thrown into a situation where he had to make a movie in three weeks, yeah. He'd suck. Yeah. And you know what I mean? Yeah. And he knows that. He knew that. Uh-huh. And so time is 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 another thing. And then all the other people working with you. But the the glorious thing is that the movie was made. You put that out there and people did enjoy it. And, you know, I always remind people that Brian De Palma made six movies before you he made anything you cared about. Mm-hmm. You know, like and and practice is tough yeah. as a movie maker. And you know the good thing with today is that if if you have some equipment and you have you you could practice right. but it's still tough cuz you got to get people together and you got to get some help and movie making is the and I've had jobs in construction and restaurants and every movie making is the toughest job I've ever had mm-hmm. it just is yep. you know but is is do you, okay so one thing I wanted to ask you is that do you think that it's still a wonderful experience to stumble sometimes for yourself. Cause obviously you're hard on yourself and that's important too. You can't sit here and be like, I'm amazing. <laughs> I won awards at the local Chinese food film festival. <laughs> and, you know, look at what that. I they did, gave me Chris, best picture. I, I must be amazing. <laughs> <No>? <laughs> Damn it. You know, and, and awards are, <laughs> awards are nice. But the thing is, 
you have to be hard on yourself because that's the only way you're going to improve. And I want to see you direct more. Like I, I, you know, I'm sure you're planning on it, but it's, you know, because that's, that's when you get good. You've got to make a few things that might terrify you first. Yes. You know? Yes. Yes. That, that's exactly right. Oh my God. That's right. And, um, it was funny because right after it was, I cared so much and it was such an experience, both the amazingness of being around talent and getting to, to work with them and the, the horrifying shock of the things that were misfired, the combination, I walked away and I said, you know, I'm going to do this again, but if I don't, I will be like Herc Harvey and, you know, I will do one movie now. And so I said that to myself, I said, nobody is, you know, wanting or making or, or, you know, twisting anybody's arm to make movies. There's plenty of people who will die to do it, literally die. And so now I am very, very uh, excited and happy that I'm doing it again. I mean, I did do like little documentaries and stuff like that for Fangoria. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it took some time, but you're absolutely right. You have these things in your mind and, and you know exactly what didn't go right and you're ready to fix it. You're, you're, you're educated and you're ready. And if anybody is going to, um, you know, hard hand anybody on their first movie, well, I mean, that's okay. That's un completely understandable because some people are geniuses on the first time out and that's amazing. But, you know, let's only, if we talk like that, then we have to talk about your, meaning whomever, your first movie and your first, that's all we can talk about, not your 10th. We're not comparing it to your, just like what you said. So yeah, learned, oh my God, learned, learned so much. and amazing just and looking back it's like it, I kind of like laugh because it was like a little too epic perhaps but um but good but damn it good because you learned all that much more no I I like I love it that way that's, that's, I feel like let it all go I mean look at um what was it um Ken Russell he made listomania what a freak show but you know like he just let it all explode onto the screen yeah. <laughs> that's right that's right oh my god um yeah probably it's funny because i i just love all of my actors so much i just just forever grateful to every fucking one of them are great um but i got to say like the funnest just for sheer fun just fun element uh with sh shooting the uh, Susie's secret tv show was just on the fun factor not i'm not saying it's the most creatively amazing but just laugh for laugh that was definitely definitely a lot of fun and i'm glad that was the first thing that that we shot oh that's great i i mean you know, there's so much. I feel like I could do a whole series on you, but um, <laughs> you are writing your autobiography, right? Yes. I mean, do you feel like there's so much? The thing is, there's so much ahead that are you going to wait to publish the autobiography or are you going to put at least chapter one out soon? 
chapter one. Um, I'm not going to wait that much. Um, I'm just going to, I am probably, I'm really, it's hard to say because when you're writing, it's almost impossible to give like a, a proper actual percentage, but I would say I am 85 to 90% done. And just so you know, because I know a lot of people will be like, oh, that's too bad. But considering the amount of things that happened, this is, is from, this is just the years in the streets in detail. That's, that's this, oh, this wow. first book from the um, underground to the, or sorry, from the underbelly to the underground. I should know the name of my own book. But it's not out there. That's amazing, though. That's that's really intriguing because you know, like I said, there's so much that you've done, and are continuing to do that. I think that's appropriate. I think that first book should be about that time because there's, I mean, obviously there's a lot I don't know, and I, you know, I look forward to reading it. Yeah, and it's time. It's time. And why I say that is because it's so it's so long ago that it's not so fresh and raw, in a bad way. Um, and you know, is it, is it hard to write? Yeah. There's moments that are completely traumatizing, but it's good. And there's enough time where, you know, I, I no longer care what you meaning anybody, right. Thinks, or, or, you know, hopefully you will, uh, relate in some way. I mean, that's why I've always been about like the underdog and I've never belonged to cliques. I mean, they always, my whole life tried to put me in the group, um, which is far a nicer term now, but they always tried to like, try to shove me in that, that hole, that tiny little hole of scream Queens. And now it's a big, you know, okay, non-judgmental term. And so it's, it's far easier to take now, but for the longest time, it's like, there's, you know, there's other, other ladies that, uh, you know, they kind of made what, you know, the meaning or whatever they were the, the group. And I'm, that's not my group. I mean, honestly, when exactly when I came up, sure, there was other people working, but they were either from the decade before, or they really started the next decade. I'm, I was really like a lone wolf, really. And, you know, it's not like people were helping me or in that regard, like none of that was going on. So, you know, I wasn't trying to like break into their world and take anything away. Never, never. I never wanted that. So I never, the, the impetus to do that wasn't there because I didn't want it. Uh, but did I fall into it? Yeah, totally. I mean, that's, that's what was going on in the nineties. So a lot of that stuff, you know, happened anyway, if you will. But, um, yeah, I've just always kind of, you know, been like the in-between guy, if you will. There was this movement then, then I came along, then there was this movement after, then there's all these new movements. And I always, always felt in my mind anyway, that it was, you know, sort of a lone, a lone thing, if you will. That is, yeah, no, I think that is how other people will learn from your story is because you absorb this journey as a lone wolf, so to speak, right? Because you you learned. And when you're trying to always adhere to a zeitgeist or a, a group or some kind of clique, your mind is just being, I want to be accepted. 
And in your case, it was like, no, I want to explore this new thing. I want to do a great job on this piece of artwork. I want to achieve this. And, uh, you know, that I, I, I couldn't live any other way. And I think that's the greatest way to live, especially leaving artwork behind or teaching people or learning for yourself as a soul. And um, before I get to the question that I ask every guest on the way out, I do want to know, um, you know, please tell me about anything you're, you're planning or working on that you want to reveal or anything, any aspirations, because they never stop. That's the thing that people don't understand about a true artist and a true lone wolf is that these aspirations don't stop until you're, you know, wherever you're going to go next. They're always here. It's always fresh. Passion is always fresh. It doesn't, it only increases for me, you know? So what are you, what are you working on? What are you planning going forward? Because I know, you know, you're always going, like, it's always something bigger. It's always something more elaborate. What do you, what do you have uh, well, in the current, future? There, there's a, there's a few different things that are very interesting. And as you know, better than the average person, when, when something is in the process, it's a long process. So um, there is a person and a company, it's a, a sizable company, uh, but that's all I'll say, not to be weird or, or vague, but you know how all these things go. Uh, there's going to be a documentary made on me, which is super cool. Just the super beginning of it is happening now, just, you know, ink drying and all that sort of thing. Um, and as soon as I'm able, I'll, I would share more information. Obviously, I'm not making it because that would be kind of weird, but I'm not, I didn't even pitch it. I just had this person who's been in the business forever tell me that they pitched it to this production company. Um, and they said, yes. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, I didn't even know none, any of that what was happening. So that's great. That that's really cool. I like wow, that a that's lot. Uh-huh. It's very, very cool. Um, so that's sort of percolating, not on my stove, but on another stove, um, doing a lot more of the podcast. I have about three or four more, um, lined up that are just finished, uh, being written. So I'm, I'm doing that. I have a couple of different columns, of course. Um, I'll be directing a short part of an anthology in LA, but I don't know. It depends on the strike. That's the thing. Um, it could be the end of December. It could be January. So, um, that's really, really cool. And that has, um, and it was put together. I was doing another short in the same anthology and the person who was to head this particular one up was, um, replaced by me. This is just, you know, for no particular reason, it just sort of went that way by the producer's decision and uh, it's a great, great story. It has um, uh, Bill Mosley and Kane Hodder in it and some folks that we know and love. And it's a really cool short. Um, and it's called uh, Frida, Evil's or Origin. So that's that's going to be happening. But like I say, it's it's you can't even really put the um, money down to rent a place until you know when you can actually shoot because these are union actors. Predictable, especially when it gets into the level of business, you know, but um, art is always there and it's in the people's hands and it's a beautiful future. And I can't wait to see, um, you know, everything forthcoming 
from you and you had this documentary about you and you know you've you have so much to offer uh just your story alone you know so um i would just you know thank you so much for doing this and i uh i want to ask you a question i ask everybody this there's no right or wrong answer to it okay so when you are and I, whatever your beliefs are it really it, it doesn't matter whatever answer you give me is the right answer so when you're ready to leave this existence, hopefully not for a very long time, um, what would you take with you or what will you take with you? Um, that could mean anything, physical or non? Yep. Oh, wow. Holy shit. I will take, really at the end of the day, I'm going to take my um, Clash albums. Really? Sorry. <laughs> it's as simple as that. I'm going to take my Clash albums. That really, that's that's what I want to take. <laughs> Strange, but I was thinking, okay, what really is really, really, okay, that's what it is. I, I keep thinking of it, so it can't be wrong. Got to be the right answer. That is awesome. I thought you were going to ask me, what is what would I like to be remembered for? In which case, I was going to say, which just came to my mind, that if my last name became a verb, like the actors I love. In other words, when I say to myself, this role requires me to spinel it, what does that mean? That means just throw myself in no care, no, you know, you don't even give two shits what it sounds like, looks like nothing, nothing. Why do I say that? Because if you look at him, he didn't care. He ran around shirtless with his stomach. He was just the character. And he's just like, he just like embodied it. Like he just went for it and he didn't give two shits about, you know, um, ego, none of that stuff. And I guess you could kind of sort of say the same thing really about Nicolas Cage. You could almost verb him. And so that would be like a, a place to aspire to get to, to like become like a positive verb, and which means to fucking go for it. That would be amazing. Welcome back to Off to the Witch. I'm your host, Christopher Garitano, and I want to thank you for joining us tonight. I suppose, outside of a great story, the takeaway from this interview tonight can be that no matter what you do, make sure it's something you truly love and have a passion for, as the obstacles will always be there, but your dreams will make the journey well worth it. Until next time.